So Frank was a good dog, uh, but he really wanted to be a flamingo. And so Frank went to the library and checked out some books on flamingo transformation. Um, he tried painting himself pink and gluing some feathers on his body. Um, he started listening to some podcasts about how to have a flamingo mindset. Um, and he downloaded a couple apps that would help him change his diet, right? So he could start to get used to flamingo food. But no matter how hard Frank worked, he couldn't get his knees to bend backwards. His nose was still soft and wet, and he was still just a dog. All of the techniques and all of the effort in the world couldn't bring about the transformation that he so desperately wanted. Um, and much like Frank the dog, most people today, we still want to be transformed. Probably not into a flamingo, though maybe some of you might want that. But most of us want to be smarter. We wish we were healthier, maybe less angry, more talented, or you fill in the blank. And we can tend to think that if we could just read the right book, or if I could master the right technique, or if I had enough effort, maybe I could transform myself into who I really wish that I was. The problem is none of those things ultimately work. Our diets fail, our apps go unused. We can't ever seem to get the transformation we need. And the transformation that we desperately need, whether we know it or not, really can ultimately only be found in Jesus. And we will never be able to life hack our way into a changed life. And the dead can't bring themselves to life no matter how hard they rattle their bones. So today we're going to look at the kind of transformation that Jesus can bring us. And the kind of transformation that he brings to every person in these stories as he calls his first disciples. And so what we'll see is that the salvation that Jesus brings really does change everything about us. And so our, our passage this morning is in Luke chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to go almost to the end. We're going to stop at verse 26. So if you are able, if you would stand um, with me, whether physically or in spirit, um, and out of respect for God's word. Verse 1, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. And the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into the one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and to help them. And they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, for from now on you will be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything. And followed him. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one but to go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. 
And one of those days as he was teaching Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and they were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Um, Lord, I ask that you would be here in this place this morning. Lord, I, I ask that you would help us to see these amazing things that you did in these stories that you would help us to see the amazing things that you are still doing today in our world and in our lives. Lord, would you fill us up with glory and amazement? Would we leave this place glorifying you all the way home? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. Um, our, our first point, the first thing that Jesus transforms is Jesus transforms our identity. Jesus transforms our identity. So the first transformation, especially the disciples of Jesus' experience, is a transformation not just of their purpose, but of who they are. So it's looking at the story, verse 1, on one occasion. So the crowd is pressing in on him to hear the word of God. And he's standing by the lake of Genesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So Jesus, he's continuing his preaching ministry and such a great crowd is gathered around him while he's at the lake, and he sees two boats that are nearby, and so he has an idea of how he is going to use them. So three, getting into the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him, hey, put it out a little bit from the land. And he sits down on the boat and taught the people from the boat. So Jesus asked to borrow Simon's boat, and he goes out in the water, maybe so just the crowd can hear him better. But it seems that Jesus has another purpose other than just good acoustics, because everything that Jesus does is on purpose. And significant. And the purpose is revealed in verse 4. So he finishes teaching and then he says to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. Now this is anything but a very simple request. This is not just Jesus asking Simon Peter to try for a moment. Jesus is asking Peter to begin some serious labor again. Okay, and look how Simon responds in 5. He says, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. They've been working all night long. If you've ever had to work a night shift at any kind of job, you know how tired you are afterwards. And fishing is very hard physical labor. More than likely, they're using drag nets, these massive, probably 100-foot long nets, and they spread them out between the boats, and they slowly drag them together to get the fish, and then pull them and see if there's anything in it. It's long and physically demanding work. All night they have worked, they have sweated, and they pulled those nets all over to get nothing. 
Now, when Simon says they toiled, he means they, this has been back-breaking work. They're exhausted. They want to go home. And remember, first two, they're washing their nets. That's also hard work. So they take those nets out and then dry them off, clean them, fix them, do all of that. So they finished for the day. They're closing up. It's over. Even one more time, right, means they'd have to go back. And now I've got to clean and wash those nets again. I just, I just finished that, Jesus. I don't think I want to do that again. We can understand why Simon would tell Jesus, yeah, I'd really rather not. Because all of that effort, they didn't get a single fish. Whole night of work, nothing to show for it, not one fish. Not to mention they've been listening to Jesus preach probably for hours. I would be tired. I probably would have fallen asleep in the boat already. And yet, Simon says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Simon is willing to obey even though he doesn't understand. He's willing to obey even though he thinks it's foolish and probably a waste of his time. And even though he doubts, he has faith. Because faith is not about believing with every fiber of your being. Faith is about letting down your nets anyway. Faith is about obeying even when you doubt. And so they let down their nets in six. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. And their nets were breaking. When they step out in faith, God meets them there. And the fishermen who hadn't caught a single fish now catch hundreds. They catch so many that their nets are breaking and they could lose it all. And seven, they signal their partners on the other boat, come and help them. And they come and they fill both of the boats until both of these boats start to sink because they are so overloaded. They have so many fish, they need the other fishermen to help them pull them out. And suddenly they're all sinking. Can you imagine the shock that they felt in that moment? Um, the joy, the, the laughter, even the surprising day of their professional lives. That would be a story they would want to tell all the other fishermen. Nate, but when Simon Peter sees it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter recognizes at this moment, if he hasn't before, that Jesus really is God. Peter's seen Jesus work miracles. He saw Jesus heal his mother-in-law. As we mentioned last week, and Peter has heard Jesus preach and teach on the kingdom. And now Peter has seen Jesus work another miracle for him personally. And Peter responds in the same way everyone has always responded when they are in God's presence. They fall on their faces. And he acknowledges his own sinfulness and he asks Jesus, leave. I don't deserve to be in your presence. I don't deserve to be around you. I am a sinful man. Nine, for he and all who were with him, they're astonished at the catch that they had taken. And also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were there in partners with Simon. They're all amazed at what God has done. And James and John, who are also going to be called as disciples of Jesus, are all amazed by Jesus. But Jesus says to Peter, do not be afraid. For from now on, you will be catching men. This is where the transformation takes place because an encounter with Jesus always leaves you changed. It always leaves you transformed. And Simon has had a powerful encounter with Jesus. Simon Peter, I think he's overwhelmed by Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, all he can think of is his own unworthiness. But Jesus already knows Peter's sin. Jesus already knows everything that Peter has done. Jesus already knows everything that Peter is going to do. Jesus already knows that Peter's going to cut off people's ears and he's going to betray Jesus and deny him three times at the critical moment. And yet Jesus says, do not be afraid. 
Because it doesn't matter who you say you are, Peter. It doesn't matter what you actually are. What matters is what the I am says that you are. And because Jesus, what he does is he changes and he transforms our identities. He transforms who we are. And Jesus tells Peter, from now on, you will be catching men. Jesus says, no longer are you fishermen, you are fisher of men. He has some fun wordplay. Jesus gives him a new identity. He's not just being silly and playing with puns. Simon probably identified himself by his occupation, much like we do today. When he thought of himself, he thought of himself as a fisherman. But Jesus changes his identity. He changes who he is, and he gives him a new purpose. And what we see here, what's amazing is Jesus, he doesn't just wipe our slates clean and start us over from scratch. The transformation of Jesus doesn't take who we are and erase it and give us somebody new and completely different. It's not as if Jesus says, well, you used to be a fisherman, but now I'm going to make you something much different and, and much better. So ignore all of that. Jesus says, you were a fisherman, and I'm going to take everything that you are now, and I'm going to change it and transform it into something new. Jesus makes us a new creation, and he restores us to what we were always meant to be. And our new identity is found in Jesus, and Peter is now going to use all of his fishing abilities and everything that he has been to now make disciples for the kingdom of God. In 11, when they brought back their boats to land, they left everything. They followed him. And these men, they left everything to become disciples of Jesus. I don't know if we recognize how significant it is. They're leaving, turning their backs on their families. They're turning their backs on their way of life. They're turning their backs on their occupation. They're also turning their backs at the height of their careers. It's the most successful day that they have ever had, and they walk away from it. It doesn't say that they sell the fish first and take the money, and then they go and follow Jesus. It says they just leave it on the beach, and then they go and follow him. They leave everything because Jesus has changed who they are. They're not people who catch and sell fish now. They're people who follow Jesus. And they're going to go do that. This is still true for us today, I think, that God takes who we are and he makes us new. This doesn't always mean that we have to quit our jobs, but it does mean that he changes our identity. We are no longer just what we do. We, now we do whatever it is that we do, but we do it for the kingdom of Jesus. Now we do whatever it is that God has given us to do, but now we are trying to make disciples of Jesus as we do it. No longer are we just a banker who saves people money, but now we try to save souls. No longer are you just a doctor who heals the, heals the body, but now you're a doctor who tries to heal people's souls. No longer are you just a stay-at-home mom who raises children. Now you are also to raise up disciples of Jesus. That wherever our occupations are, whatever our identities, Jesus takes them and he transforms them and changes them. And so Jesus, he changes our very identities, but he also changes the way that we think about ourselves. We see this in the second story. Point number two is that Jesus transforms our shame. Jesus transforms our shame. This is one of the most wonderful things that Jesus does for us. He doesn't just change who we are. He doesn't just remove the stain of sin. He removes the shame of it. And this is what the story of Jesus cleansing the leper here is all about. It's my favorite of these three. Verse 12, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Now, we don't know exactly what kind of leprosy that he had. Oftentimes, it can be, leprosy can just be a catch-all word to refer to some kind of disease of, sin, of the skin. But this man seems to not just have a small case of leprosy. It is, he is full of it. It's all over his body. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, just like Peter, Lord, if you will, 
You can make me clean. The leper is begging to be made clean, and it seems as if it's not just something he does once, but over and over he begs. Now, why would he say be clean? Why wouldn't he ask for Jesus to heal him? Because the primary problem that a leper would face was not just their disease, but it was the being un ceremonially unclean. Because clean and unclean, they're categories in the sacrificial system. They were partially meant to be symbolic, right, of being righteous and holy. And one of the th only things that were clean could enter into the synagogue to worship God. Only things that were clean could participate in the community's life. And there were various ways that people could become unclean. If you touched something that was unclean, it would make you unclean. If you came into contact with blood or something that was dead, you would be unclean. And leprosy will always make you unclean. To be an unclean leper was a painful life. Leviticus um, 13, 45, 46, it gives some instruction on lepers. The proud person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and shall let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and he shall cry out, unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. That's the life of a leper. They have to wear torn clothes and gross-looking hair and can't cut it. And everyone who sees them has to know that they are unclean. And in case somebody misses it, anytime they walk into a room or see someone, they need to yell out and shout, unclean, unclean. They don't get to have conversations with people. They have to live alone. Not just alone in a house, but outside of town, like a hermit out on a hill far away. Because if anyone touched them, if anyone came into contact with them, they would be made unclean. There are even some rabbis who at this point would go above and beyond and say, okay, you need to stay 100 yards away from a leper if they're upwind, but if you're downwind from them, you need to stay 400 yards away because you really don't want to catch the uncleanness. Can you imagine how lonely and how painful that life would be? I mean, just imagine that. How hard would it be to not just deal with your disease, but you have to do that alone? Years of not touching anyone. Years of probably no to, if any, conversations with anyone, unless they're a leper too. Years of everyone running away from you and averting their eyes when they see you coming. Ten th tens of thousands of times, most of what you have said to others is just unclean, 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 unclean. How much shame would you carry? And so yet, this leper dares to go where Jesus is. He dares to come around where people are. And the whole walk there, he has to yell out, unclean, unclean, here I come. Now, we don't know, but I'm sure people gave him dirty looks or wished he would go somewhere else. Or maybe they went somewhere else. They wondered, why isn't that leper staying far away where he should be? But this leper has heard of Jesus, and this leper comes to be made clean. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Like Peter, he falls on his face. He falls out of shame, out of desperation, and he begs. He seems to beg repeatedly, possibly through tears and sobs. I don't know. But look at what he says. Because this leper has faith. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He knows that Jesus has the ability to make him clean. He doesn't doubt his ability. He only wonders if Jesus wants to. He only wonders if Jesus will desire to make him clean.
13, and Jesus stretches out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy leaves him. It's probably the first time he's been touched in years, and Jesus reaches out and touches him. Just the touch from Jesus alone, even if Jesus said no, if he touched him, that might have been enough for the leopard and made his day. Could have held on to that memory, but Jesus touches him and says, I will be clean. Jesus doesn't say be healed. He says be clean because Jesus takes away all of the shame of being unclean and immediately that leprosy leaves and all of the shame of it goes away too. In 14, and he charges them, tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest. Make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now again, why would Jesus do this? Now, partially, I think it's because it's a reminder, as I said last week, Jesus doesn't do these miracles just for attention. Primarily, what he does here is for the good of the leper who has faith and wants to be made clean. And Jesus declares him clean. But the community needs to see that he's clean. The priests of Israel need to know that he is clean. He needs to be declared clean so that he can go back and enter into life. And Jesus makes a reference. He says, as Moses commanded. These are found in Leviticus 14. I'm not going to read it all, but it'd be worth studying on your own if you want some homework. It's a week-long ceremony that they're supposed to engage in. It begins with the priest. He brings out two birds. The birds are both cleaned. One of them is killed. And the blood of one of the birds is spilled on the other and on the leper. And then the priest says, you are clean. And one bird is let go. Then the man gets to wash, now he can go shave, and he gets to come inside the camp again. He can move his tent in. He still has to live alone, but he can at least be closer. And then after seven days, he has to shave all of his body clean, and he has to wash new like a baby. And then they sacrifice two lambs, and after that, the man is declared clean and can go back to normal life. Jesus wants him to do all of these things. It might seem like a lot of bureaucracy, but that really would have been a massive celebration. Okay, this didn't happen very often. The priest might have had to brush out the scriptures and look again to see, wait, what are we supposed to do? I've never done this before. The community would have gathered to see these sacrifices, to see, is this leper really clean? It was all over. Is his body, is it all gone? They would have cheered and celebrated. It was an honoring and a public declaration that this man was clean. And as a result of that, 15, but now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Crowds gather anyway. Because this is the Jesus who heals. This is Jesus who takes dirty people and he makes them clean. This is the Jesus who takes pitiful people and he makes them beautiful. And Jesus does something interesting in 16, but he withdraws to desolate places to pray. Jesus repeatedly leaves the crowds, and this time he does so to pray, but I think that something else is going on here as well. So Jesus goes to the desolate place, and I think he does this symbolically as well, because it's in here with this story with the leper, because the leper has had to live in desolate places because he was unclean, and now Jesus goes to the desolate place, because usually those who touch lepers are made unclean. Even holy things, if they touch an unclean thing, it's made unclean. But now Jesus, he's not unclean because he's God. And yet, he leaves the crowd anyway. At the very least, it just reminds me of how Jesus takes our shame from us, even though he does not have to, even though he is not unclean and he is not sinful. He takes our sin even though he is without sin. 
He endured the shame of the cross even though he is perfect. The cross was not just a gruesome, painful death. It was a shameful one. It was for slaves and criminals. You died naked and mocked by the crowds. But Jesus endures our shame and he takes the leper's uncleanness upon himself. He touches the unclean. This is why I think he goes to the desolate places. Not because he really is unclean, but because he carries our shame for us and takes it away. And Jesus came to take away the shame of our sin. And Jesus can transform all of us into people who are clean. Now, I don't know what kind of shame that you carry. Maybe there are things that keep you up late at night. As you drift off to sleep, you start to remember things that you said or things that you've done you wish you could forget. Maybe you carry the shame of being divorced. Maybe you carry the shame of your children or your grandchildren not living as you hoped. Maybe you carry shame because you're poor. Maybe you carry shame from a chronic illness and you just hate complaining about it, but it's still there. Maybe you carry shame from sexual sin. Maybe you even carry shame because you've been sinned against. It's not uncommon for those who have been abused to be filled with shame. Especially when that abuse is sexual in nature. That's a lot of the shame that I've carried in my own life. Um, I've shared this before, but I I was sexually abused um, when I was younger. And that brings a lot of shame. Um, Because our culture cries out often that the abused are unclean. And especially if you're a man. I was even abused um, by another man that is doubly shameful to admit, especially in a Christian audience. It only compounds the shame because no one wants to admit that or say that. I don't know what your shame is. Um, I don't know what makes you feel unclean. I don't know what makes you feel unworthy of God's love, but Jesus knows. And Jesus knows as much as he knew Peter and as much as he knew the leper's uncleanness, and Jesus can make you clean. And Jesus can take away all of your shame as he's taken away mine. He is willing if you will only let him wash you clean. So come to Jesus in faith. Come to him asking if he will make you clean. And the answer will always be yes if you have faith. So Jesus, he transforms our shame, but our shame's only on the outside. Our shame is often how we feel about sin that we've committed or done to us. But Jesus needs to actually do something about our sin. Point number three is that Jesus transforms our sins. Jesus transforms our sin. This is the heart of the work of Jesus. He came to change sinners' hearts. He came to forgive us of our sins. And this last story is about how Jesus transforms our sins. In 17, in one of those days, he was teaching. Pharisees and teachers of the law, they're sitting there, and they've come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord is with him to heal. Jesus, he's been teaching, healing and teaching, and now the religious elite, they come to town. Presumably, they come from all of these different villages, even from the capital, Jerusalem, and they come to evaluate Jesus. They want to know if this preacher is the real deal or not, or maybe he's a charlatan. 17 or 18, and behold, some of the men also come, but they're bringing on a bed a man who is paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. In contrast to these men, some regular people come. They come bringing someone to be healed. They've heard of Jesus too, but they don't come to evaluate. They come to bring their friend in faith. In 19, but finding no way in because of the crowd, they go up to the roof. And they let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. This is one of my kids' favorite stories. Maybe just because they tear a hole in the roof, and it's a great one. Right? They, They can't get to Jesus. There's too many people. And some of the people in the way are these Pharisees and these scribes who are sitting there maybe with their arms crossed trying to figure out what they think about Jesus. 
But instead of turning around, instead of getting in line and waiting and hoping, they take action. They jump up on the roof. And they push tiles out of the way. They make a hole. They dig through it. And they drop their friend right there at Jesus' feet. Say, okay, here he is, Jesus. Sorry, can, can you heal him? 20. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Notice again what Jesus addresses. He doesn't start with the healing. He says they're forgiven their sins. He's forgiven because of his faith. They cut the hole through the roof knowing that Jesus is going to heal. They're bold enough to come before God and they came believing that Jesus would do it. And Jesus does above and beyond what they ever imagined and above and beyond what they asked. 21 of the scribes and Pharisees began to question saying, who is this? Speaks blasphemies. Who can forgive sins but God? So you're theological experts. So knowing their scriptures, they say this has got to be blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And they'd be right, except Jesus is God. And he can. But they also doubt probably because they were likely to believe this man was paralyzed because of his sin, or at least his family's sin. So they might believe, well, he's getting what he deserved. And the religious elite often doubt that sinners can be forgiven. You might believe Jesus, God could forgive small sins or small sinners like themselves, but, you know, great sinners are past God's grace. 22, Jesus perceives their thoughts because he is God, and he answers their inner thoughts and says, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? Because Jesus is God, he can read their thoughts, and he asks them a hard question. Which is easier to say, sins are forgiven or you're healed? It's kind of a trick question. Both of those should be impossible. They shouldn't be able to say either of those. But neither of them are impossible with Jesus. 24, but so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And Jesus says both of them. Jesus says your sins are forgiven. And Jesus says, rise and walk. Remember, each of these stories in the instances of healing, it has its own significance. The primary point of the story, I don't think, is the faith of the friends. It's not even about the judgment of the Pharisees because they seem to be amazed at the end. It's about the fact that Jesus has the power to forgive sinners. And Jesus can transform all of us from sinners into saints. And Jesus himself says, I'm going to heal the man so that you know I have authority to forgive sins. And Jesus heals that man so that every time he wonders if he really was forgiven, he can look down at his own feet and remember, oh yeah, I can walk. And Je that man who let me walk says, I am forgiven. 25, and immediately he rose up before him, picked up what he had been lying on, and he went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Immediately at the word of Jesus, he stands and he runs home to see his family. And the whole way home, he is praising and giving God glory. And not just the paralyzed man, it seems that the whole house is glorifying God. They've seen extraordinary things. They've seen God in flesh. They've seen Jesus not just heal the paralyzed, but they have seen Jesus forgive sinners. Which do you think is the greater miracle? Which is more extraordinary? Helping a paralyzed man walk. Or making a sinner a saint. Forgiving sinners is the most extraordinary work that Jesus does. It's his greatest miracle. Because the forgiveness of Jesus is not cheap, it's not just empty words. 
Right? There's sometimes we tell people we forgive them and we don't mean it. I'm telling, trying to teach my children to do that. And so they often say, I forgive you. And I, I know they don't really mean it yet, but we're practicing. Or we'll tell people, oh, you know, it's okay. No worries. No problem. Or we'll try to help someone else's guilt by saying, well, it's not that big of a deal. Jesus doesn't do any of those things. Jesus offers true forgiveness and true transformation. And it's not that Jesus says, I've forgiven you. He is saying that God has. That's why the phrasing in it is so awkward. So let you know this is not just Jesus himself as an individual. This is the Godhead forgiving your sins and wiping your slate clean. It means all of them. Every last shameful thing, every last moment. They are forgiven not because of any obedience, but because of their faith. So dare to run to Jesus and don't let the crowd or anything stop you. I invite you this morning, man, run to Jesus. Jesus is still working miracles every single day when he forgives sinners. And the salvation, this transformation is available to anyone who wants it. The house of God is not too full. God's grace has not run out. Don't let your shame hold you back. Don't let your weakness, your sickness hold you back. Dig through the roof, put down your net, fall down at Jesus' feet. And anyone who has faith can be forgiven, transformed, and made new. Where we've been this morning, we've seen that Jesus, he transforms our identities, our shame, and our sins. That through Jesus, we, we no longer have to be who we believe that we are. We no longer have to be what our occupation was or is. We don't have to be what our shame says that we are. We don't have to be who the enemy whispers in our ears that we are. Instead, we can be who Jesus says we are. We can be transformed, made clean, and forgiven. So come and be transformed by Jesus because he is willing. I invite our worship team to come up and lead us as we worship and glorify our extraordinary Savior once more. Lord, I, I praise you that you are still in the business of making the unclean clean, uh, of welcoming sinners who are unworthy to be in your presence and giving them a new identity and a new purpose. And Lord, of forgiving our sins. Lord, we have new sins today. We have sinned many times since the first time that we asked you to forgive us and to make us new and give us new life. Lord, we will sin many times this afternoon and in the days and weeks to come. And yet you forgive us. Lord, give us the faith to continue to run to you to fall at your feet, and to ask for the grace that you so freely give. Would we leave glorifying you, amazed at the transformation that you bring us? Pray these things in your holy and your precious name. Amen. Won't you stand as we worship our Savior in song one more time? This benediction from Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God bless you. Go in peace.